Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today's episode is a very special one. Uh, late last November, I once again had the chance to attend the American Society for Gravitational and Space Research's annual meeting, which was held this year in Denver, Colorado. Now, this meeting is always a very exciting one, and there's obviously some natural energy that comes into play whenever you're talking about something as cool as spaceflight. But what always really strikes me is the amount of cross-disciplinary discussion and diverse collaboration that goes on. This is one of the few places where you can go and, in the space of a few minutes, meet plant biologists, fluid physicists, materials scientists, artists, students, medical researchers, and so on. I encourage everyone within the range of my voice to plan on attending their meeting this year in Houston uh, between the 4th and 7th of November. But for right now, let's go to some of those great conversations that I had in Denver. First up is Dr. Kevin Sato, who is ASGSR's immediate past president, although he was president at the time we talked. Let's go to that interview. Dr. Sato, thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, it's great to be here. Okay, yeah, it's it always great to be at the ASGSR meeting. Yeah, no, it's one of these uh, really nice, great meetings where we get an opportunity uh, to bring specifically our science community who is interested in doing life sciences, physical scientists, and fundamental uh, physics research all together in one place to really learn about um, the science that is going on in each field, to build and develop networks, see where we have crosstalk and cross-pollination uh, of scientific research. But really, it's, it's a really nice area to celebrate the unique type of research that we're doing, uh, which actually is leading not only to uh, understanding how life and physics and physical sciences work in the space environment, but also how it is helping to bring about the revolution in terms of commercialization of space and, and eventually bringing us back to the moon and then beyond to Mars. Okay, and why don't we talk about the commercialization of space um, a little bit. What role does that play for ASGSR? Uh, it plays a very large role. Um, there are several areas of commercialization that uh, we, we use. Uh, for example, for, to conduct our experiments in space. Uh, we have commercial groups who actually help to implement our experiments in space and operationally uh, take us forward. Uh, we use commercial transport carriers. Uh, there are also new platforms that are coming about, such as Blue Origin suborbitals or other types of platforms that are really man managed and run by commercial that without them, we would not be able to do our experiments in space. The other part, too, that's important is the ISS National Lab. And what that does is it allows now commercial entities, which also help to feed uh, life back on Earth, uh, to understand how space helps health or industry or commercialization on Earth um, to go. And they're all part of our group. So really, um, commercialization is a part of how we are and how we do our science, just as much as as other groups are in terms of funding our scientific research endeavors. It really brings two groups together, commercial and academic research. And that's something that ASGSR helps facilitate? Yes, yes, by bringing the communities together and um, letting our, com our community of, of academic research scientists understand where the potential is for them to fly. Mm -hmm. Um, really helps, and there's only one other place that that occurs, and that's the ISS, uh, ISS R&D, or Research and Development Conference. But this is really based on the science we do to, to allow and help 
commercial can help enable the research that we can do. I don't know if, you, if you've in, uh, hired a media consultant this year, but everybody's on the message with the idea of bringing everybody together under the same roof to talk mm -hmm. together. Um, so I'm assuming that that's actually just what goes on here. Yes, very much so. I mean, we do have our scientists, they, as, as research, researchers, right. they go to other conferences, but it's really you know, the full spectrum of research from just flat out academic or whatever research that's conducted on Earth without any component to space to some space work, right? Because they're all researchers, they all have a broad spectrum of science use. This one really is specific to how does space enable research and how is research enabled by space? And that's what's really great. And now you get to talk to a lot of people who do the work and so collaboration, partnerships and other things can develop. And what we're also seeing is that uh, in scientists and other groups who are potentially non-traditional to spaceflight environment are starting to come into this community and, and learning, hey, I have certain questions I want to ask, but I don't, I cannot ask them in the environment that I'm in, or I need to look at other extreme environments, and uh, space may provide it. And so they come here and they learn more about what we do, and that translates into an increase in the scientific community. Now, the other in important factor of the ASGSR is that we are heavily involved in the training and inspiration of students, graduate students, undergraduates, high school students, and yeah. middle school students and lower. They're all invited, they all come, and they have an opportunity to learn uh, from our professional scientists, as well as to meet and build networks within each other, because at some point they're all going to be their peers right. conducting research at a higher level. Yeah, and you know, I, I would just say for my part, I was incredibly impressed by the student poster presentations and sessions. You know, I was talking to high school students who were doing work that is well over my head uh, as a you know as a forty year old guy, albeit not a scientist, but. You know, there's just some incredible discussions going on at this meeting. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's absolutely astounding. You know, and, and what the what the ISS, the International Space Station, has done to really drive forward um, our science and technology and engineering education, or STEM education, even to a certain extent, STEAM with the arts. Yeah. You know that would not have been possible without the International Space Station. It's really opened the door to everyone all the way down to the high school even certainly to the elementary school level and what's great is this high school students come in and, and you know as, as we become professional scientists we know boundaries we know certain things we can and right. cannot do these students don't and it's really refreshing to see these broad ideas and questions that they ask and i tell you you know from the first sgsr we had them come in when the students come in, there's just a ratchet increase of energy uh, within the whole ASTRSAR community um, when they come through. And, you know, it, it, I've seen, you know, our scientists just get really rejuvenated talking to these students. Yeah. And the students are just absolutely, you know, fantastic. In fact, uh, one year a student said, you know, I wasn't quite sure whether I wanted to go in science, but now that I came to this meeting, he said, this is exactly what I want to do. I want to be a scientist. Yeah, and that, I have to say that doesn't surprise me one bit. You know, it's it's a palpable feeling of energy. You know, when they're when those sessions are going on. Yeah, and the, and the important part is um, is the students come in, but they don't know that you know they're doing things, and they, and they they have a question. You know, am I doing something that's that's real? Is it real yeah. world? Right? Because that's always their question. How is I, what I'm doing really relevant? Yeah. They come to this meeting, and they talk to the scientists, and they have the realization that hey. What I am doing at my level to, under, to define my experiment, to run our experiments, and all sorts of questions I'm asking, it's the same 
that the professionals do. So I'm really doing something that is relevant to my future. It's not just something that's just out there. They learn that I am doing something that the professionals do, but at my level. And then they learn and they build from that. Yeah, it was fascinating. You know, I, some of the students I talked to even have an experiment that's, um, you know, planning to be performed on the ISS mm-hmm. um, in this in this coming thing, and that's you know an opportunity that is just incredible for some of that. Oh, age. it is. It, it's a it's a wonderful facility, you know, that's really opened the doors to everyone, and uh, you know, the, I, from you know the schools that have programs to um, you know programs that uh, NASA has to programs that the ISS National Lab has to help promote student education, student research, whether it's on the ground uh, to train them or whether it's actually uh, through suborbital, through Blue Origin and other yeah. groups, or through um, you know, the International Space Station. It, it's, it's really astounding. Yeah, has that been a priority for you during your presidency? Yes, um, yeah, yeah it, it really has. I mean, overall, it's really been how do we grow and build our community and how do we show the cross-links between physical scientists, fundamental physics, and, and life sciences, as well as promote them individually. But it's really been a priority also to really build our, our student community, because in, in reality, they're our future. Absolutely. And so if we can't train them, if we can't inspire them to do wherever they go in the future, um, you know, we're, we're never going to grow. And so it's really been a, a, a priority um, to make sure we have a strong student uh, foundation here at, at, in the society. That's fantastic. It, it really does come through. Um, let's talk a little bit about the meeting. You know, I think we're, we're heading in toward the grand finale. It's it's uh, getting a little bit late on a, fr- on a Saturday afternoon, actually. Um, we're going into the awards banquet. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, the, you know, the, uh, the Fellows Awards? So the Fellow Awards, uh, this is the first year we're awarding it, and it's really to recognize individuals who in the society have contributed to the, to the society itself, but more so in terms of their contribution to the science within their field or their uh, contributions to promoting spaceflight uh, research uh, to executing in space and also uh, their contributions to education. So it's really to, set, to recognize those individuals who have put forward uh, that extra effort and, and capabilities to really bring about you know, this revolution and, and uh, promotion of, of space life science and physical sciences and fundamental research in space. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, I'm certainly looking forward to the banquet and the ceremony. Um, it should be great fun. Dr. Sato, thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the chance to talk with you. And next up, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Doug Matson of Tufts University, who was also the incoming president of ASGSR at the time that I chatted with him. Thank you very much for joining me, Dr. Matson. Uh, thank you for having me here today. Okay, so I um, thought we might first talk a little bit about ASGSR itself. You're the president. That's correct. You know, kind of what are the plans or expectations for the organization for the next year, roughly? Okay, there's, uh, there's two big things for the upcoming year. The first is that uh, this is going to be the 20th year that uh, the station has been on orbit. And so we're going to be celebrating the research accomplishments that we've had through the past two decades. Uh, Continuous operation with uh, man in space. There's now about a quarter of the world's population who uh, are younger than that, and therefore they have never known a time that there wasn't a man in space. And that's an interesting observation to have. Yeah, that is interesting. I'd never thought about that. Yeah. And, And the second thing is we're preparing now for an upcoming 
uh, decadal survey, which allows us to put input into the National Academy of Sciences for them to assist NASA with figuring out what should NASA be looking at as far as research opportunities and working towards the next mission to Mars, mission to the moon, et cetera, as, as part of the uh, um, developing a, a coherent plan to prioritize the science. Okay, and just so I understand the mechanics, um, who carries out the survey? Survey is done by the National Academies. They bring in a bunch of experts from uh, across the nation and mainly people who are outside of NASA. Uh -huh. And they go through and evaluate, uh, you know, what have what has NASA done in the last ten years, and what are the needs of uh, NASA based on where we think the uh, agency is going with future missions. Okay, and so at this point, you're also then, you know, kind of looking at the types of research that might be done. Correct, as well? correct, and prioritizing that research, and also looking a little bit into how much uh, that would cost. Okay, and, and can you tell us a little bit, you know, perhaps what we might be seeing on the horizon? Sure. Um, well, right now, as you know, we're we're in a transition period trying to get the first man and the first woman uh, onto the moon uh, since the Apollo era. And there's a lot of things that have to be done in order to make that possible. It's leading towards having a habitable environment on the moon and then going onward from there to Mars. And so I, there, there's a bunch of tasks in radiation and flame stability and dust management that have huge impacts on the ability for people to safely go and live in space for long durations. One of the other things is we would like to be able to do some manufacturing, say, of uh, new of materials, uh, come up with new materials that are have better properties than things here on Earth. But also, if you're on a mission and you have a tool and it breaks, you, you can't bring a bunch of spare tools along. It weighs too much. Right. So we have to be able to go and make tools there in situ so that we can do the maintenance and repair operations that are required for a successful and safe mission. Yeah, that, that's interesting because ISS, it's not exactly a commute to get up there. Right. It's much simpler, much cheaper, and uh, it, it now is, is regular operation that's part of, it's, it's not something that's new. And we have all these new challenges when we, when we think about going to the moon. Um, you, you would think, oh, we've done it before. Uh, but that, but th that's not. We, we went there as a as a as a on-off type thing. We were going to be there and we were going to leave. Right now, we're thinking about going there and staying, and that's a completely different mission and has a whole bunch of different challenges. And especially with with uh, the fact that we don't have a good simulation for one sixth gravity. You know, we, we have a great simulation for the transit. We, we, can, we can do s experiments on the International Space Station right. where there's zero gravity, and that's what you're going to have when you're going to and from the moon or to and from Mars. And so we, have a, we, can, we can do a lot of tests on that, but we don't have something that's large enough to do. Well, how do you transfer propellants from one tank to another at one-sixth gravity? Right. Very difficult to yeah, try to simulate, whereas you know we, we we can we can simulate transferring propellant at zero gravity. Sure. So uh, there's a lot of issues that that uh, we're going to have to come up with a new way of doing science uh, that includes not only this low Earth orbit, but some suborbital flights and other activities that'll allow us to tailor the gravity to figure out what the physical effects are going to be. The same is true in the life sciences. You know, you have a bunch of uh, 
we, we have this twin study where we've had a person in space for a year, but what about a person at one-sixth gravity? We don't know. Yet. We have no clue. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. So this is an entirely new set of challenges for exactly. ASGSR members and researchers to kind of And out NASA has to broaden its portfolio because, you know, sure. they've, been, they've been concentrating, you know, in, in zero-gravity activities because that's what we can do. It's, it's cheap. It's efficient. And, but now we are saying, okay, our next mission is, is colonization activities. And so how do we develop the science? How do we, how do we broaden our, our portfolio of what we've looked at in order to make it safe for people? So that, that, that's fascinating. So you're really dealing with a, a situation that's m closer to Earth than dealing with zero gravity. I wouldn't say closer Close, to Earth. Closer. I, would, I would say I would say it's it's just it's got its new challenges. I mean, okay. you know, you, your body reacts to microgravity. It's a stress factor. Sure. Well, is it linear? Right. I mean, it may be that, that one-sixth gravity is worse than being at zero gravity because your body says, oh, I'm okay, and no, I'm not. And you may actually have uh, mood swings that are completely different. Than, right. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing that, that we have to start uh, putting in new research activities to look at. And that's some of the stuff that we've been hearing about at this meeting. Today that's so correct. Far. Why don't you tell me a little bit about um, your research and what you've presented at this meeting? Um, so my research activity is looking at uh, the effects of convection on alloy solidification, and it has applications uh, both here on Earth and in space. Uh, on Earth, we're looking at uh, optimizing production routes to make better materials with uh, higher reliability, cheaper and faster. But uh, in space, we need to understand uh, just what is the effect of, of, of convection on the strength of a part that you would make if you were doing uh, on-orbit repair. Uh, so what we're trying to look at is uh, how do metals solidify and where do defect structures develop and how can we control those defect structures so they're not in uh, a place that's detrimental to the parts use. Okay, so this would be like is if I were heating up a piece of metal in order to... No, it's more, it's more in terms of actually making okay. the part from scratch. Okay. So when you were doing the first, you know, you start out with raw materials and you're going to come up with a part that's then useful for, you know, let's say you needed a wrench of a certain right. size. Well, we could, we could make that wrench. And it's, it's actually that process of going from raw material to finished product. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not trying to look at uh, how one would heat treat it to, uh, okay. to optimize a performance. So in that case then, you know, the effects of gravity or the lack thereof has some effect on the way that the metal behaves? Um, it, it's actually, so when I do my uh, science, I am actually uh, using microgravity as a, as a tool. I, I, it's not that how do metals solidify in zero gravity. It's how can I process the material differently than here on Earth? And what I do is, on Earth, I can process the material with no convection or with a lot of convection, but I can't access that region between. Uh, in space, I can access that entire uh, uh, spectrum from no stirring to a lot of stirring, and therefore I can understand the underlying science back behind what's going on, so I understand how I can control the parts structure. And so, and you do see different results? On Earth, when we have no convection, uh -huh. we see uh, that we get, you know, very nice microstructures, um, but, it's, but it's very hard to actually produce those structures uh, for an industrial process. 
in when we go and have lots of stirring, that would be like pouring metal into a casting. And that's very common in industry here on, on ground. Right. By going to space, I look at that continuum between. And so it's that I go to space in order to control the convection. I don't go to space to get microgravity. So it's a subtle difference. It's many, many operations. Uh, if you're in plant science, you want to understand how do plants react in zero gravity. Right. I'm not trying to find out how metals react in zero gravity. That's not what I'm doing. Okay. I'm using space as a tool to help me access new regimes of flow that I can't do here on Earth. And why aren't they accessible on Earth? Um, the, the biggest piece of equipment that we use is something called an electromagnetic levitator, and it causes stirring in the sample. And you have a magnetic field that creates fluid flow within the sa a conductive sample. And the weight of gravity pulls the sample down into the field. That means there's a lot of forces required, and there's a lot of stirring. In zero gravity, we don't have to worry about the sample being pulled down into the field. And therefore, we can turn the power up and down to change convection instead of being forced to use the power to keep the sample uh, positioned properly. Okay, I get it. So this is a situation in which you know you you're able to you're able to carry out sort of a, a, a mid-level amount of stirring that Correct. you couldn't accomplish on Earth because you don't have to overcome gravity. And that has implications for you know the way that you, one would build tools in space, which then you might need them you know as you were going on longer missions and it, oh well, you know th think of it in terms of like you know you, you you've done DIY projects at home and you've got a tool and and you break it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah, yeah oh, of I've course done that. yeah yeah of course <laughs> and, and so what do you do well you go to the hardware store and get a new blade well you can't do that in space <laughs> yeah you got to make one yeah you got to make one because you can't bring a whole bunch of spares along because you know like think about your tool set with uh, with all the ratchet wrenches in there. You know, or, or or even the uh, all the different sizes of Allen wrenches. You don't want to ring. You don't want to bring six of those. No. You just bring one, and if you break one, you make a new one. Or better yet, you don't bring any and make the one you need. Right. <laughs> that sounds like an ideal, but it also sounds like it would be a little nervous in case you need that Allen wrench. A last question. Um, do you have any broad thoughts on you know the meeting itself and kind of what this brings for researchers and, and what they're able to do and talk about and, and get together? There's there's several facets to that. Um, the first is is the one of the advantages to our society is we bring physical scientists and biological scientists together. Yeah. And so therefore, you know, when you're listening to a talk in something that's outside of your field, you actually can get these you know translational ideas like, oh, well, that's an interesting concept. Maybe I can start thinking about how that impacts what I'm doing. Yeah. Um, the other is, of course, uh, the outreach activity. We have a high component here where we bring in high school students and, of course, the undergraduates and graduate students and give them an opportunity to show the science that they've worked on and to speak with scientists who are doing these activities and give the kids a chance to develop ideas on, on how to mature what they're doing and make STEM Actually, I guess the new word is STEAM, which Steam, is yeah. science, technology, <laughs> engineering, arts, and mathematics. Which, uh, so to make STEAM uh, uh, real to the students, it's not just some concept that their, their teachers are telling you. And then the, 
The, the third aspect, of course, is, is, is technical networking. I get a chance to talk to my colleagues and, and meet new colleagues in, in uh, other disciplines. Uh, so I, I get to talk to people from NASA's mission science directorate that I never would have met. Right. I, I mean, in, in my, my role, I, I work with NASA Marshall. Sure. And so I would go to Huntsville, Alabama and work with the NASA engineers there. But it's a small community, and, and we're trying to be efficient. But this way, I get to talk to people who are making policy decisions and you know policy is not something I normally think about right and it's it's but it's very important because it, it's leading to the future you know where are, where is NASA going and how can I be a part of that right so an opportunity to you know break down silos and talk to people exactly that otherwise get to communicate with all right well that's fantastic I think I'm gonna head downstairs and talk okay. to some of those students thank you very much for joining me thank you all right, and after my chat with Dr. Matson, I made good on that promise to go downstairs and speak to students. First up was Phoebe Wall, who is an undergraduate at Stanford University, but she was describing some work she did on fluid physics before she went to college, and this work was done in conjunction with Portland State University. Let's go to that conversation. All right, I'm here with Phoebe Wall, uh, who is actually an undergraduate student, and she's here to tell us about capillary action. Thank you for joining us, Phoebe. Thank you for having me. If you could just tell us a little bit, you know, why is capillary action uh, relevant for spaceflight? Yes. So first, let's talk about what capillary action is. So if you ever had a glass of water and you put a straw in this glass of water, you can see the liquid in your straw is higher up than the liquid in the rest of your cup. And so this is because of a phenomenon known as capillary action, which is liquids have the tendency to be attracted to the surfaces around them. And so the liquid in your glass of water, your water is traveling up your straw because the liquid is attracted to the surface of the straw. So the only reason why your liquid isn't going all the way up the straw is that gravity is pushing it downwards, right? So in the microgravity environment of space, capillary action because becomes the dominant phenomenon governing the behavior of the liquid. So it's really important to study capillary action to understand how any liquid works in space in microgravity. And so the systems in space that use liquids might be heat transfer systems, propellant tanks, even life support systems. Okay, and why don't you tell me a little bit about the research that you just told me about? Yes, so I am studying specifically adding features to channels where liquid is traveling passively by capillary action. And so I am studying whether or not these features produce a bubble. So it would be interesting to add these sorts of features to a channel because it could improve, for example, the efficiency of a heat transfer system. It could improve the rate of heat transfer by increasing the surface area. But it runs the risk of producing a bubble. And bubbles are bad for spacecraft systems. A bubble can shut down an entire system. So I found a way to map mathematically show whether a system will or will not produce a bubble, which allows engineers to design systems they know more definitely will not produce bubbles. Okay, and these are systems like, uh, uh, forgive my ignorance, but I'm thinking here of you know heat transfer systems being things like pipes that are sending around, what, uh, a liquid that heats the International Space Station? Exactly. So one example would be actually heat pipes are okay. an example of a heat transfer system. And these are of particular interest because they use capillary action uh, to transport the coolant. So a coolant will travel through the heat pipe by capillary action along the edges of the pipe, right, reach the end, then evaporate and travel to the other end of the pipe and then condense back into a liquid and travel by capillary action again. And so it's this time that it's in a liquid phase and is absorbing the heat from the surrounding environment. That's the phase that I'm interested in in increasing the uh, rate of heat transfer. Okay, and so the, the name of the game here is to increase the capillary action as a means of improving the flow in the system? 
in a way, actually adding the features could decrease the flow rate of the capillary action. So, it, well, but my experiment last year that I presented showed that in some situations, if the triangles are a certain size, the um, impact of the decrease in the flow rate is not big enough to outweigh the benefit that you get from the increase in surface area. Okay, and, and this increase in surface area is achieved by what, like, a, is it like the triangle shapes you're talking about? Are they like poking off the side of the pipe? Yeah, exactly. They also could be a way to model surface roughness. So even if we're not um, manufacturing these perfect triangles into a heat pipe, just changing materials or changing um, the roughness properties of the materials can achieve this as well. And at the same time doing that while not producing a bunch of bubbles that mess up the system. Exactly. And that's what my experiment is showing this year, is showing when it does or don't does not produce bubbles. Okay. And you mathematically modeled this? Yes. So I created a regime map. So a regime map is basically a graph. And you look at it, and there's different data points in different colors. And each color corresponds to a regime. So now a regime is just a situation that could occur. So one regime is no bubbles are produced. Another regime is that bubbles are produced and they're expelled out of the cavity and into the rest of the liquid, or maybe they're trapped by the cavity. And so in a regime app, you can see that the data is separated based on the variables that you have on your x-axis and your y-axis. And then you can draw lines or curves between those different colored areas. And so then in the future, an engineer could look at that regime map and know theoretically where their data point would fall on that regime map and see what color region it's in. And that color region corresponds to the situation that will occur. Okay, and then you can use those regime maps to help guide engineers in designing systems that will work optimally? Exactly, because right now, if you don't have a mathematical model that can show whether or not a bubble is formed, engineers might be really hesitant to add these sorts of channel features to their spacecraft systems, right? So the proposition I made last year of modifying the International Space Station's heat pipes would be risky without knowing whether or not that's going to produce a bubble. And so having a way to mathematically show this allows engineers to take these design changes not have them be risks to the function of the system. And you know, something you know, I, I'm wondering, and I'm sure our listeners will as well, what's the path to getting here to this meeting as an undergraduate? You know, when, when did you do all this research? Yes, yeah, so I actually did this research in high school. Like I said, I'm a freshman. So I did this towards the end of my senior year. Uh -huh. And I originally got into this sorts of research through the Celery program. It's a NASA program. It's a collaboration between NASA, Glenn, and Portland State University. And so, um, so the Celery Challenge gives high schoolers the ability to conduct um, capillary action and microgravity experiments. And so it was originally run by um, engineers at NASA Glenn. And then the drop tower used to, to get the microgravity environment is at Portland State University. Mm -hmm. How tall is that drop tower, by the way? It's about seven stories. Oh, that's cool. So you can drop things down the drop tower and simulate a microgravity environment and do your experiments. Exactly. So you get 2.1 seconds of microgravity. And drop towers are a really great resource because it's pretty expensive to send something to the International Space Station or even in a suborbital flight. But drop towers, like the one at Portland State University, can be run very cheaply. And so you can do over 100 drops in a day if you wanted to. Oh, that is so cool. And we'll certainly look forward to seeing um, those designs in the space station in the future. Yes. And so Portland State University's drop tower is also also really exciting because um, the professor working with it is Dr. Mark Weislogel, and wow. he has done amazing advancements in um, the behavior of liquids in microgravity. And so I was really honored to work with him on this project. Oh, thank you very much. And you know, Mark Weislogel was a uh, former guest on the Bioscience Talks podcast. Uh, I think I chatted with him last year. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it was great. That's um, great. But Phoebe, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. All right, and next up, I had the good fortune to chat with two graduate students who had just concluded a presentation on biofilms. All right, thank you both very much for joining me. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourselves, and then let's go ahead and talk about your presentation a little bit. So I'm Riley Schauer. I'm a graduate student at CU Boulder, and I also work at BioServe Space Technologies, which is a research group through there. 
and I'm Pamela Flores, and I am from CU Boulder as well, but from MCDB department, and I work in BioServe 2. Well, I, w I was just at the talk, and I'm interested to hear more about biofilms in space, the surfaces they grow on, and probably more importantly, the surfaces they don't grow on. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us? So that's part of our investigation. We're sure. looking at different materials that are aerospace relevant or medically relevant. Uh, but the thing about biofilms is that they're everywhere. Right. And so that's sort of the problem, is that we need to mitigate these or find a way to countermeasure these through different materials. And so that's part of the Space Biofilms Project, which just launched on NG12 earlier this month. And it has two parts, a fungal half and a bacterial half. I worked on the fungal half, Pamela did the bacterial half. And we are studying how biofilms form in microgravity, and we have ground controls to compare them against to see what the microgravity and radiation environment does to biofilms. And I'm going to guess the answer to that is not easy. I can't, you can't just say they grow really big or they don't. So there isn't any data really on the fungal biofilms, uh -huh. but the bacterial biofilms, there is some precedence for spaceflight biofilms. Yeah. And they grow a different morphology, so a different shape. There's a column and canopy structure that's been reported, and so we're going to try and validate that and see if we see that again. Okay. So there's a little bit of data. And there's also um, changes in gene expression uh -huh. that are driving this um, modified structures that they acquire in space. So that's our um, one of our aims. We want to know what's behind the changes in structure and what's making them be more virulent or what's making them grow faster. Okay, and I'm, I'm just you know wondering, why do we worry so much about biofilms in the microgravity environment you know, on the ISS? Is it of particular concern there? Obviously, it's of some concern here on Earth, but not quite the urgency. Okay, so um, right now, the pressing urgency is that we are thinking, and by we I mean NASA, um, about Mars um, missions and also long and... Um, like deep space missions. Right. And for those kind of missions, you don't have a scenario where you can send back astronauts to Earth in a medical emergency. And the problem is that um, the biofilms, if they get pathogenic and they don't get um, to be treated and eliminated, then they can cause severe um, infections. And if you don't have the correct way to control that, then your mission's doomed because at halfway through, like your astronauts are going to be dying, or or they're just going to have to come back, and that's not viable for the future that NASA wants um, or is visualizing right now. So it's it's bad news to get sick anywhere, but it's really bad news to get sick when you are on a you know spaceship that's nowhere near Earth. Yeah, exactly, and it's also a hazard for the hardware. Okay. So, um, you know, bacteria can secrete things that can biocorrode, biodegrade, same thing with fungus. And they've been reported on all different components of spacecraft, and they can really hinder the performance of things that you've engineered. Okay, cool. So there's, a, there's an engineering cause as well as, a, as well as a human interest one. Yeah. Um, so how do you combat them? Well, we have antibiotic treatment. Sure. But um, when they get resistant, then we need to look for some other therapies. So um, for our project, we visualize that in the future, 
if we know the pathways and the genes that are being activated, allowing for this biofilms to go um, more virulent, then we're going to know um, specific targets that then we can um, set our minds to develop a new molecule that will hinder those targets. And then that's like another way of creating new um, medicines that could treat the biofilms. Also, there's like mechanic ways that you can um, like take out the biofilm from where it's growing, uh -huh. but that's only for hardware because you can't like start scratching in your urethra or <laughs> in other places in the <laughs> human. Yeah. The best way is brush your teeth. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Got it. Yeah. It, oh, do those count as biofilms? That's the perfect example of a biofilm. You okay. need to. The thing about a biofilm is that it's it adheres to things. Sure. And so if you don't mechanically disrupt it by brushing your teeth, you know, if you just swish toothpaste in your mouth, that is going to make your dentist really angry. Oh, okay. Wow. So, so you need that mechanical disruption. Oh, that's interesting. So the friction is a necessary part of it. Absolutely. For removing a biofilm. Same idea for washing your hands. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And um, how you know how are these experiments actually conducted? Yeah. So. You need specific hardware to launch something to space because a test tube does not work the same way that it on Earth as it would in space because you don't have gravity holding right. your fluid down to the bottom. And so there's very specifically engineered hardware to make sure that you have all the safety levels of containment uh, to keep the astronauts safe and to keep your science clean. Oh, that's interesting. And we keep ground controls that are um, the exact replica and we do them like in this experiment, we're doing like the controls two hour delays, but simultaneously keeping the same times of incubation, the same times where they were taken out of the incubator and then ter terminated, and for cold stowage as well. So we have um, something to compare to when the samples come back. Oh, that's fascinating research. So uh, what's next on the agenda? We're, um, our experiment got launched on November 2nd. Oh, that's cool. And it already got activated by the astronauts. So right now we are just waiting for them to come back to us. <laughs> so you're awaiting data and, you know, eventually this will be published. And Yeah, so it's on orbit right now uh -huh. and we are waiting to get our samples back so that we can analyze them. That's really cool. All right. Well, thank you both very much for joining yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for having us. And last but certainly not least, we round out the main interviews with Rob Furl and Annalisa Paul of the University of Florida, whose voices will be familiar to you from previous ASGSR podcasts. We start out with just Dr. Furl chatting about the Decadal Survey, and Dr. Paul joins us just a little bit later. So why don't you tell me a little bit about the Decadal? I, I just talked to uh, Doug Matson and we chatted about it a little bit, but, you know, what is that? So the Decadal study is... I don't know, especially for us as, as biologists, sort of writ large as a community, we don't normally think along the lines of having guiding documents that present our science to the policymakers and to the administrators that eventually enable us to do the science that we want to do. Um, NASA, perhaps uniquely among the funding organizations that we as scientists apply to, um, engage the National Academies of Science to provide a decadal and every 10-year study that aggregates the information that we've learned in the last few years, in the last decade, and then tries to predict, works at a good sort of science, forward-looking, even modeling perspective to 
guide the agency in terms of what the important science that is able to be done, that ought to be done, and that really should be done in the next 10 years. So all of the directorates, um, all of the science mission um, capable parts of NASA produce decadal studies. They range everything from heliophysics to um, planetary science to earth observation science and and now also the science that we do in space for the exploration of space and for understanding the role of gravity in in development and from a biological perspective it is it is really the kind of thing that allows us to understand the role of biology in space exploration and how exploration of space teaches us more about biology on Earth. So it's one of the few places where science policy can be put in the hands of the scientists that are looking forward. That's a, that's a really interesting process. So I was talking downstairs um, with some NASA folks yesterday, and you know they were talking about the way that they review their proposals. When they do that, are they working alongside you know these decadal surveys? Are they using them as, as sort of guideposts and recommendations when they're making those types of decisions? Absolutely, and I'm going to take just a few minutes to sort of like talk about the evolution of the decadal um, process, especially over the last 10 years as, as biology and physical sciences in space has matured in the space station era. Because it really is about the give and take, the learning and teaching and then the learning and teaching in reverse that that enables science to get done on a, on a on the very large societal scale that we deal with regardless of how you think about the purity of science eventually policymakers in washington are going to lay the groundwork lay the funding for our agencies to enable the science that gets done how the policymakers are informed eventually pays a big, plays a big part in the science that gets done. Right now, when we are presented with grant proposal opportunities from NASA, there are checkboxes on the application where we have to place, identify, and show what parts of the decadal our projects are addressing. So in a very, very real sense, the agency uses the decadal survey as a guiding light for the kinds of science that they're asking for and the kinds of science that they fund. And just how, how does that process actually go? You know, is it, is it a year-long process to, get, to conduct the survey? Is it five years oh, ongoing, oh, continuous? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it competitive? The decadal studies, the decadal surveys, excuse me, use the proper term here. The decadal surveys are a large-scale operation put on by the National Academies to capture as much and as much fairly distributed input as absolutely possible. Right. Um, so you shouldn't feel like you are in competition to get your stuff recognized right. by the decadal. What you do have to feel like, however, is that if you don't speak up, you might not be heard. Right. So the notion, the groundwork notion of the 
conduct of a decadal survey, which takes about two years to happen, by the way, is a long series of town halls, calls for white papers, calls for information, calls to visit with the academies and present information, and then the survey is put together by upwards of 100 or more people that represent the community. So you as a scientist shouldn't feel like you're in competition, but you should feel like you better get your stuff in front of that hundred or so people that are gonna to put together the survey. So there's multiple opportunities. I truly believe that the academies is skilled at conducting these surveys, because I, as I mentioned, even for NASA, they put upwards of 10 of these decadal surveys together for the various parts and places where NASA does research. So there's ample opportunity to get your science into the mix that is digested understood and then predicted, forecasted by the group that puts together the, the decadal survey. Okay. And um, you know, this perhaps is an unfair question, but any predictions, prognostications about the types of things that we'll be seeing in the upcoming survey? Uh, there's a, so there's a, oh boy, yes. So, let, so let, let me wax what I think is going okay. to be the philosophical sort of forecasting that will be in this decadal that is different than in the past. One is the moon is opened up. Right. All right. So now all of a sudden, biologists, physical scientists can, can consider again over the next 10 years what experiments ought to be done on the moon. All right. Ten years ago, that wasn't available. Now that is available. Second big thing is that there are increasingly larger numbers of industry and commercial sector folks, scientists, companies, and investors that are looking to the moon, especially looking to low Earth orbit, for commercial opportunities, for science that ought to be done, for example, in low Earth orbit to enhance whatever function that company wants to do. So there are um, increasingly commercialized interests, more production-oriented science that is likely to be included and likely to be thought about by the people putting together the Cato survey. So going to the moon, increasingly commercialized low-Earth orbit, and then also generalized the notion of going beyond low-Earth orbit. So what happens in, in our particular case, what happens to biology outside of the protection of the Van Allen belts? Again, something that we couldn't consider in the past. Okay, great. Um, why don't we talk you know, briefly about some of the, the research that you've conducted you know, over the past year since we last talked about it. What, what kind of things have been on the agenda? Well, uh, so I've mentioned that the moon is now sort of opened up. Yeah. So there's, there's a lot of sort of forward think on what happens at 1.6G and what happens on the moon, what happens in a radiation environment. But what is truly opened up on a very practical basis for science over the last year or so has been suborbital space. And what I mean by suborbital space, I mean the, the kind of space you can get to in Blue Origin's New Shepard capsule or in Virgin Galactic's Spaceship 2. And so 
10 years ago they were thinking about getting into suborbital space. Now they can get there and over the past year a number of scientists have had opportunities to fly um, experiments into suborbital space. Why is that important? One is that it's easier to get to than yeah. the space station. Um, but but as, as biologists, what we find truly intriguing about suborbital space is that we can study the transition from 1G to high G to absence of gravity and then the reacquisition of gravity in a single experiment. And we can do that in a day. Oh, that, that's fascinating. So these ships are, um, you know, being launched from Earth and then they're, they're going up into a microgravity environment or is the effect created by descent? Ah, so that's a, that's a, a truly great question. It's a, Good, it's, I'm afraid it was going to be stupid. It's, it's, a, it's a fundamental question, but it really ties together the, the basic notion that even when you are in orbit around the Earth, you're still in a gravity field. Right. It's, it is, however, um, the fact that you are falling at a constant rate around the right. Earth that that is, in fact, local microgravity. These new suborbital vehicles achieve that for about three, maybe four minutes as they cross a parabolic arc in, in, in the high stratosphere and in, in, in space, but not achieving the velocities that allow you to fall consistently in orbit around the Earth. So it's very high quality microgravity. It is of a duration that is minutes, whereas other things that we can fly in, parabolic aircraft or even drop towers, can have microgravity for a second or a few seconds. These new vehicles can give us on the order of minutes. So we're a power of 10 uh, more time in microgravity. Yeah, I remember we talked a year or two ago about, um, you know, the, the plants' sort of immediate, you know, biological responses to, you know, being in microgravity for very short periods of time on, on parabolic flights. So this kind of opens it out, you know, another tenfold. Exactly. And the other, the other thing that it allows us to do is bracket and calibrate what kinds of biological effects are um, triggered by entry into microgravity or triggered during a rocket ride into space. And it really allows us to understand the flight environment sort of writ in a much larger sense, um, um, as opposed to, again, sending seeds to the International Space Station, which we're pretty good at now, yeah. and we're pretty good at growing plants in space, but we don't understand yet how a plant would transition its physiology during a launch or during entry into microgravity. It opens up a whole new realm of experimentation once we understand that, to look at the mechanisms, especially for gravity perception and signal transduction and response to gravity changes. And, you know, what's, what's the interest in that specifically, the launch environment? You know, I, I understand, you know, why we, we need to know what microgravity does to plant growth, because we would presumably be growing plants on longer missions, or why do we need to know um, specifically, you know, what happens to them during launch or reentry? What, what's the... Uh, so, 
That's a very fair question, and it really highlights the notion that as plant biologists, we we float around in the space world either as people that worry about how to feed astronauts right. or people that try to understand basic biology principles using plants as, as model organisms. Clearly, in the space exploration business, we're not going to be launching plants to orbit, nor are we going to be asking plants to ride with us down to the surface of the moon. So, so from a feeding astronaut's perspective, we don't really, you're right, right. We, okay. we don't care. But if we're looking for places and regimes where we can understand how organisms perceive and transmit signals in response to gravity, now we have a chance to examine those systems where we didn't have that chance before. Okay, so it's it's basic understanding of, of the way yeah, at this work. at this point for suborbital flights especially it is about understanding basic gravity sensing and response. Okay, and right now we've just been joined by Dr. Annalisa Paul. Hi, good morning. Hi, good morning. Um, so we've been talking a little bit about uh, the kind of science that's enabled uh, by suborbital flight. Um, what, 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 have, what sort of research have you been up to since the last time that we've chatted? Well, in addition to the suborbital work that we've been doing, we're also doing analyses still of some of our last epigenetic, epigenomic experiments that we flew on the space station. And we are gearing up for our next experiment that will be a true epigenetic experiment where we take a look at what happens when plants spend their entire life cycle on this on an, in microgravity environment, collect their seeds, and then put those seeds back on in another flight and take a look at how the uh, physiological adaptation matches with the genetic adaptation. Oh, that's, it's, that's interesting. So is this the first time that um, seeds have been taken from a plant that's been itself grown on the ISS? I don't think it's the first time that okay. that actually has been done. However, this would be the first example of where we have actively taken a look at what we call the epigenome and the epigenetic effects of how the experience of living and developing in space can essentially imprint the um, basic genetic mechanisms that then guide how a plant adjusts its physiology to that environment. Okay, that's fascinating, um, and we'll look forward to that. Why don't we talk a little bit about um, you know the, the meeting and, and some of the things that you've been uh, presenting and talking about uh, so far? So, you know, any, any particular highlights? Any any particular talks that you know you found exciting or participated in? Um, <laughs> presentations you gave yourself? Well, I myself haven't given any presentations okay. this particular particular time, but it has been a lot of fun. This particular meeting, I think we get better and better about integrating the uh, life and physical sciences to solve the same kind of problems or look at the same kind of questions that we have on what does it take to grow plants or develop animals on a microgravity environment. It takes a combination of both engineering of physical spaces and physical habitats and adjusting how the plants and animals that have to live in those habitats can be chosen, adjusted, engineered. And, you know, just as an example, you know, kind of um, how, how does that play out in those collaborations between the physical sciences and the life sciences, um, you know, on the ISS or, or for planned future missions? Well, sometimes it's as simple as talking to each other. A lot of times we work in, a, in relative vacuums of we look at problems and how things that we need to solve when just down the hall you have somebody who's been thinking about, for instance, how fluid moves in pipes for a very long time, and it's a 
just as simple as getting together and writing things out. And I, sh I should mention we just heard a talk this morning that, that basically involved um, understanding it and engineering fluid movement as it would impact uh, interactions with roots. Uh -huh. um, I think this is the f the first or among the first time when the physical scientists have tried to understand capillary flow right. in a way that now engenders um, sort of an engineering approach to being better biologists, better horticulturalists in space. So, for example, they're using sponge-shaped or root-shaped sponges to understand fluid flow and with the anticipation that once they understand that, they can, they can better engineer their systems to interact with our roots. And that's interesting. So this, that's the kind of opportunity that you wouldn't get outside of a venue such as this one. Exactly, exactly. And we, we're getting um, more and more proactive about creating those type of interfaces, those kinds of interactions at this meeting particularly. And, and you know, how do you go about that? I'm, I'm just curious from sort of a mechanical standpoint of, of you know, how do you, how do you encourage those types of collaborations? <laughs> well, in, sometimes it's very, very granular, very particular. And okay. so, for instance, when, when we are designing the meetings for the year, the symposia for the, for the coming year, mm -hmm. we have a committee at ASGSR where we get together and think about, well, what would we like to see? And so it's as simple as, okay, let's have a symposium that highlights these type of interactions. And we, we call up the people who do this kind of work, and we ask, would you please come and give us a talk? Right. And we choose also talks from among the abstracts that are submitted, put them all in the same room, and let them go. And the, I, I should also mention that the society has, again, as part of the decadal survey that we talked about earlier, encouraged the notion that the um, administration, that the agencies that we interact with, and in this case in particular NASA, pay attention to those new interactions that are, that are important. So for example, the, the driving together of the biological and the physical sciences is a, is a conscious multi-year effort by not only the society, but also the agency and the national academies that, that made recommendations to this whole group. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, it, th those types of collaborations, it's not the kind of thing that happens by accident. Um, it, you know, it takes the, the, you know, kind of concerted effort of... It's a very conscious yeah. effort. You're, mm -hmm. you're so right about that. So, so one other topic that we could, could discuss, so when you're talking about um, how do you get people to collaborate, how do you get people to work together, there's another serendipitous kind of thing that I think ASJSR is very good at, and that is um, bringing people from the outside of our community. Right. So a lot of, one of the things that has been very interesting in this particular meeting is there have been several researchers who are, this is the first time they've come to ASGSR. Okay. And they have come specifically because they've been looking at and mining some of the data from uh, 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 microgravity type research and spaceflight research and saying, wow, I, I see a connection here that's relevant to my work, even though they never considered doing spaceflight research before. So they wanted to come and learn more. And, and it's been very exciting both to talk to those newcomers, those new people with new ideas and new perspectives, because that really enriches the community in a way that 
just doing the same old stuff, of course, won't. Right. And how do you find those people? You know, are, are you reaching out to them, or are they reaching out to you as they see the research become available, or the data become available? It, does, it works both ways. It works both ways. Yeah. yeah. So I, I assume that all of you have very busy email inboxes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank, Thank you both very much for joining me. No, you're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Yeah, you definitely are welcome, and we appreciate the fact that you're here doing what you do because in answering some of your questions about how we build communities and broaden our communities, doing what you do is a big part of that. Thank you. And we'll let those kind words from Dr. Furl close out our formal interviews from the 2019 ASGSR meeting. But as we've done in the past, I wanted to bring you some additional sights and sounds from the exhibit hall and student presentations. I had a lot of great conversations with students at their displays this year, so please listen along and be sure to register for ASGSR's 2020 meeting, November 4th through 7th in Houston. I'll include the link in the show notes, and thank you very much for listening. Okay, and so um, are y'all undergraduate students, graduate students? We're high school students. You're high school students, I know. Um, all right, so why don't you tell me a little bit about this poster and what I'm looking at right now. Sure, so for our experiment, we are studying the effect of rest on steel conductivity and microgravity. So, rust is a very dangerous issue. Uh, it can degrade the physical, thermal, and electrical properties of metals. And this is bad because we're sending up complicated machinery into space and we don't want it to get ruined by rust. Okay, cool. So, uh, what have you found so far? So, results are actually pending. We're okay. scheduled to launch uh, February next year. Okay, great. So, you're going conduct, you've conducted the experiment on Earth and now you're going to conduct it on the ISS? Yes. Oh, that's really cool. When's, do you know when the launch is yet? It's so in February. February 20, um, 20, so next year, and it should take about a month, 30 days, so then hopefully um, it will land mid-March, maybe April. And then, you, and then you're going to be here next year with another poster telling us how, yes. how it went in yes. space. Yes. Oh, well, that's so cool, and I'll look forward to hearing from you then. I was actually part of a summer internship at uh -huh. the Gene Lab for High School Summer Program, uh, which is in Mountain View, California. Um, and basically, in this program, we um, were given data sets to analyze, and from there, we um, proposed a hypothesis and um, an experiment that goes along with it. Um, my team decided to focus on the um, soleus, uh, which is a, a major anti-gravity muscle. Um, and we wanted to see the correlation between that and the insulin signaling pathway. We focused on a gene called um, Early Growth Response 1, or EGR1. Okay. Um, and basically, in the um, normal insulin signaling pathway, this gene um, doesn't necessarily play a big role. And insulin signal is able to do its thing, and sure. glucose is able to get taken up into the body. But when EGR1 is overexpressed, it actually binds to the insulin receptor, and that inhibits it and blocks off communication with the rest. So is this a case in which, you know, there's a potential maybe risk for type 2 diabetes for those who are in space? Yes. Um, there is an increased prevalence of precursors of type 2 diabetes. Thank you very much for sharing that with me. Thank you. Yeah, so basically what we're doing is we are trying to 
find in microgravity if there's a difference between calcium carbonate formation on Earth than in the microgravity. We think that there could be applications with uh, medical research for like osteoporosis medication. So we're going to be running two trials in space. We have a small container, and then it, once the experiment is in orbit, we're going to combine vinegar and dolomite crystal to form aragonite, which is okay. the calcium carbonate. Um, and then in space, we're running two trials, and on ground, we're running 20 parallel tests. And by the by the time that we retrieve our, our space samples, um, we're going to go to the University of Minnesota crystallography lab and compare uh -huh. the crystals to see if the formation, to see how the structure the structures of the crystals are different. It's flying in March. One um, potential thing that we're looking at is in, um, when astronauts are in space, their bones lose, they lose bone mass. Right. So that's an obvious example, I guess. We're trying to look at the formation to see if it's different, but this um, crystal is also used in treatment of osteoporosis. Okay. So we're seeing if maybe the samples that we fly in space to see if those are either better or worse for the treatment. How, how in the world do you wind up doing this as high school students? How does this happen? Yeah, through a program at uh, our high school Minya Academy. And I think it's just a great opportunity for us to send a small project with real life applications to help scientists and yeah. Veggie, it's a module for growing plants in space. That's right, this is, um, the Veggie was developed a number of year ago, years ago, but uh, we have two of them now up on the space station being split between growing plants for crude eat and for research purposes. So the astronauts are now actually able to eat the plants that are coming out of the system? Most of the time. Sometimes the tissue is spoken for by the research people. <laughs> I mean, right now they're doing kind of a 50-50 split, but and it just gives you a variety, which psychologically is important when you're stuck in a small vehicle somebody for you know, quite a quite a time so. you know what, what I'm looking at right now are uh, various rotating instruments mm -hmm. pieces of equipment and so these are able to simulate microgravity yes how does that work well in a nutshell what they're doing is rotating um, against the gravity vector okay uh, so it, it effectively averages out over time so that it's ends up with zero gravity. If you've ever been on a roller coaster, or if you've been on a plane, right. you, or an elevator that drops too quickly, for example. You, you got two out of three today. You'll experience that momentary sensation of kind of weightlessness or suspension. So what these devices do is, is, is capitalize on that momentary right. weightlessness. So these small platforms that you see here are suitable for small model organisms like microbial specimens that you can grow in culture uh, and the plant seedlings. For example, if this one, if we let this go continuously, you can see we've had quite a bit of growth in the plant. So those are, those are real plants? Those are real live plants. And if you leave them in there long enough, they will outgrow their containers. Sure. Cool. And I'm just curious, you know, why is it that everything we see on the ISS in a rack of some sort? <laughs> Got to contain it somehow. So okay. Th th this is the way of having everything contained in, in its place and, and have all the hookups that you need for power, data, thermal, uh, cooling loops, yeah. uh, whatever you need. Because if you just put it on a desk, it would float away. Exactly. It's anything from hardware development to helping people design their experiments to fit into the um, constraints that is associated with spaceflight. So it's all of it. The BioServe does, um, you know, your ground controls all the way up to 
getting your results back. So an experiment that just got sent up sure. um, was a biofilms in space. So okay. What they were looking at was biofilm formation on different material coupons um, that were associated with space flight hardware. So they sent up these coupons in test tubes with bacteria and then uh, started the cultures in space and then they terminate the experiment, bring them down, analyze the genes, analyze the biomass, all of that stuff. Was that the experiment I was just hearing about? Exactly. In the okay, was, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, that would be kind of a bad thing to find out at halfway to Mars. That, yeah, you know, definitely. All of, all of a sudden your electronics don't work anymore because they're all rusted up. Exactly. Okay, cool. Um, well, thank you very much for talking with us today. Okay, thank you. Cool.